Section 2 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 2. The Gauls Out of Gaul. Part 1. About three centuries B.C., numerous hordes of Gaul crossed the Alps and penetrated to the center of Etruria, which is nowadays Tuscany. The Etruscans, being then at war with Rome, proposed to take them, armed and equipped as they had come, into their own pay. If you want our hands, answered the Gauls, against your enemies, the Romans, here they are at your service, but on one condition, give us lands. A century afterwards, other Gallic hordes, descending in like manner upon Italy, had commenced building houses and tiling fields along the Adriatic, on the territory where afterwards was Aquileia. The Roman Senate decreed that their settlement should be opposed, and that they should be summoned to give up their implements and even their arms. Not being in a position to resist, the Gauls sent representatives to Rome. They, being introduced to the Senate, said, quote, The multitude of people in Gaul, the want of lands, and necessity forced us to cross the Alps to seek a home. We saw plains uncultivated and uninhabited. We settled there without doing any one harm. We asked nothing but lands. We will live peacefully on them, under the laws of the Republic. Again, a century later, or thereabouts, some Gallic Cimmerians mingled with Teutons or Germans, and said also to the Roman Senate, quote, Give us a little land as pay, and do what you please with our hands and weapons. Want of room and means of subsistence have, in fact, been the principal causes which have at all times thrust barbarous people, and especially the Gauls, out of their fatherland. An immense extent of country is required for indolent hordes who live chiefly upon the produce of chase and of their flocks and when there is no longer enough of forest or pasturage for the families that become too numerous, there is a swarm from the hive, and a search for livelihood elsewhere. The Gauls emigrated in every direction. To find, as they say, rivers and lands, they marched from north to south, and from east to west. They crossed at one time the Rhine, at another the Alps, at another the Pyrenees, more than fifteen centuries B.C., they had already thrown themselves into Spain. After many fights, no doubt, with the Iberians established between the Pyrenees and the Garonne, they penetrated northwestwards to the northern point of the peninsula, into the province which received from them and still bears the name of Gallica, southeastwards to the southern point, between the river Anas, nowadays Guadiana, and the ocean where they founded a little Celtica, and centerwards and southwards from Castile to Andalusia, 
where the amalgamation of two races brought about the creation of a new people, that found a place in history as Celtiberians. And twelve centuries after those events, about 220 B.C., we find the Gallic peoplet, which had planted itself in the south of Portugal, energetically defending its independence against the neighboring Carthaginian colonies. In Dorcius, their chief, conquered and taken prisoner, was beaten with rods and hung upon the cross, in the sights of his army, after having had his eyes put out by command of Hamilcar Barca, the Carthaginian general. But a Gallic slave took care to avenge him by assassinating, some years after, at a hunting party, Hasdrubal, son-in-law of Hamilcar, who had succeeded to the command. The slave was put to the torture, but indomitable in his hatred, he died insulting the Africans. A little after the Gallic invasion of Spain, and by reason, perhaps, of that very moment, in the first half of the fourteenth century B.C., another vast horde of Gauls, who called themselves Anahra, Ambra, Ambrans, that is, Braves, crossed the Alps, occupied northern Italy, descended even to the brink of the Tiber, and conferred the name of Ambria, or Umbria, on the country where they founded their dominion. If ancient accounts might be trusted, this dominion was glorious and flourishing. From Umbria numbered, they say, three hundred and fifty-eight towns. But falsehood, according to the Eastern proverb, lurks by the cradle of nations. At a much later epoch, in the second century B.C., fifteen towns of Liguria, containing altogether, as we learn from Livy, but twenty thousand souls. It is plain, then, what must really have been, even admitting their existence, the three hundred and fifty-eight towns of Umbria. However, at the end of two or three centuries, this Gallic colony succumbed beneath the superior power of the Etruscans, another set of invaders from Eastern Europe, perhaps from the north of Greece, who founded in Italy a mighty empire. The Umbrians, or Ambrans, were driven out or subjugated, Nevertheless, some of their peoplets, preserving their name and manners, remained in the mountains of Upper Italy, where they were to be subsequently discovered by fresh and more celebrated Gallic invasions. Those just spoken of are of such antiquity and obscurity that we note their place in history without being able to say how they came to fill it. It is only with the sixth century before our era that we light upon the really historical expeditions of the Gauls away from Gaul, those, in fact, of which we may follow the course and estimate the effects. Towards the year 587 B.C., almost at the very moment when the Phocians had just founded Marseille, two great Gallic hordes got in motion at the same time, and crossed, one the Rhine, the other the Alps, making one for Germany, the other for Italy. The former followed the course of the Danube, and settled in Illyria, on the right bank of the river. It is too much, perhaps, to say that they settled. The greater part of them continued wandering and fighting, sometimes amalgamating with the peoplets they encountered, sometimes chasing them and exterminating them, whilst themselves were incessantly pushed forward by fresh bands coming also from Gaul. Thus marching and spreading, 
leaving here and there, on their route, along the rivers and in the valleys of the Alps, tribes that remained and founded peoples. The Gauls had arrived, towards the year 340 B.C., at the confines of Macedonia, at the time when Alexander, the son of Philip, who was already famous, was advancing to the same point to restrain the ravages of the neighboring tribes, perhaps of the Gauls themselves. From curiosity, or a desire to make terms with Alexander, certain Gauls betook themselves to his camp. He treated them well, made them sit at his table, took pleasure in exhibiting his magnificence before them, and in the midst of his carouse made his interpreter ask them what they were most afraid of. "'We fear not,' they answered, "'unless it be the fall of heavens. But we set above everything the friendship of a man like thee.' "'The Celts are proud,' said Alexander to his Macedonians, and he promised them his friendship. On the death of Alexander, the Gauls, as mercenaries, entered in Europe and Asia the service of the kings who had been his generals. Ever greedy, fierce, and passionate, they were almost equally dangerous as auxiliaries and as neighbors. Antigonus, king of Macedonia, was to pay the ban he had enrolled a gold piece a head. They brought their wives and children with them, and at the end of the campaign they claimed pay for their following, as well as for themselves. We were promised, said they, a gold piece a head for each Gaul, and these are also Gauls. Before long, they tired of fighting the battles of another. Their power accumulated. Fresh hordes, in great numbers, arrived amongst them about the year 281 B.C., they had before them Thrace, Macedonia, Thessaly, Greece, rich, but distracted and weakened by civil strife. They effected an entrance at several points, devastating, plundering, loading their cars with booty, and dividing their prisoners into two parts, one offered in sacrifice to their gods, the other strung up to trees, and abandoned to the gaze and matars or javelins and pikes of the conquerors. Like all barbarians, they, both for pleasure and on principle, added insolence to ferocity. Their Bren, or most famous chieftain, whom the Latins and Greeks called Brennus, dragged in his train Macedonian prisoners, short, mean, and with shaven heads, and exhibiting them beside Gallic warriors, tall, robust, long-haired, adorned with chains of gold, said, This is what we are, that is what our enemies are. Ptolemy the Thunderbolt, king of Macedonia, received with haughtiness their first message, requiring of him a ransom for his dominions if he wished to preserve peace. Tell those who sent you, he replied to the Gallic deputation, to lay down their arms and give up to me their chieftains. I will then see what peace I can grant them. On the return of the deputation, the Gauls were moved to laughter. He shall soon see, said they, whether it was in his interest or our own that we offered him peace. And indeed, in the first engagement, neither the famous Macedonian phalanx nor the elephant he rode could save King Ptolemy. The phalanx was broken, the elephant riddled with javelins, 
the king himself taken, killed, and his head marched about the field of battle on the top of a pike. Macedonia was in consternation. There was a general flight from the open country, and the gates of the towns were closed. The people, says an historian, cursed the folly of King Ptolemy, and invoked the names of Philip and Alexander, the guardian deities of their land. Three years later, another and a more formidable invasion came bursting upon Thessaly and Greece. It was, according to the unquestionably exaggerated account of the ancient historians, two hundred thousand strong, and commanded by that famous, ferocious, and insolent Brennus mentioned before. His idea was to strike a blow which should simultaneously enrich the Gauls and stun the Greeks. He meant to plunder the temple at Delphi, the most venerated place in all Greece, where there float from century to century all kinds of offerings, and where, no doubt, enormous treasure was deposited. Such was, in the opinion of the day, the sanctity of the place, that, on the rumour of the projected profanation, several Greeks essayed to divert the Gallic brand himself by appealing to his superstitious fears. But his answer was, The gods have no need of wealth. It is they who distribute it to men. All Greece was moved. The nations of the Peloponnese closed the isthmus of currents by a wall. Outside of the isthmus, the Boeotians, Phocidians, Locrians, Megarians, and Aetolians formed a coalition under the leadership of the Athenians, and, as their ancestors had done scarcely two hundred years before against the Xerxes and the Persians, they advanced in all haste to the pass of Thermopylae to stop there the new barbarians. And for several days they did stop them, and instead of three hundred heroes, as of yore in the case of Leonidas and his Spartans, only forty Greeks, they say, fell in the first engagement. Amongst them was a young Athenian, Sidious by name, whose shield was hung in the temple of Zeus the Saviour at Athens, with this inscription, This shield, dedicated to Zeus, is that of a valiant man, Sidious. It still bewails its young master, for the first time. He bare it on his left arm, when terrible airs crushed the Gauls. But soon, just as in the case of the Persians, traders guided Brennus and his Gauls across the mountain paths. The position of Thermopylae was turned. The Greek army owed its safety to the Athenian galleys, and by evening of the same day, the barbarians appeared in sight of Delphi. Brennus would have led them at once to the assault. He showed them, to excite them, the statues, vases, cars, monuments of every kind, laden with gold, which adorned the approaches of the town and of the temple. "'Tis pure gold, massive gold," was the news he had spread in every direction. But the very cupidity he provoked was against his plan. For the Gauls fell out to plunder. He had to put off the assault until the morrow. The night was passed in irregularities and orgies. The Greeks, on the contrary, 
prepared with ardor for the fight. Their enthusiasm was intense. Those barbarians, with their half-nakedness, their grossness, their ferocity, their ignorance, and their impiety, were revolting. They committed murder and devastation like dolts. They left their dead on the field without burial. They engaged in battle without consulting priest or augur. It was not only their goods, but their families, their life, the honor of their country, and the sanctuary of their religion, that the Greeks were defending, and they might rely on the protection of the gods. The oracle of Apollo had answered, I and the white virgins will provide for this matter. The people surrounded the temple, and the priests supported and encouraged the people. During the night, small bodies of Aetolians, Amphysians, and Phocidians arrived one after another. Four thousand men had joined with Delphi, when the Gallic bands, in the morning, began to mount the narrow and rough incline which led up to the town. The Greeks rained down from above a deluge of stones and other missiles. The Gauls recoiled, but recovered themselves. The besieged fell back on the nearest streets of the town, leaving open the approach to the temple, upon which the barbarians threw themselves. The pillage of the shrines had just commenced when the sky looked threatening. A storm burst forth, the thunder echoed, the rain fell, the hail rattled. Readily taking advantage of this incident, the priests and the augurs sallied from the temple clothed in their sacred garments, with hair dishevelled and sparkling eyes, proclaiming the advent of the god. "'Tis he we saw him shoot athwart the temple's vault, which opened under his feet, and with him were two virgins who issued from the temples of Artemis and Athena. We saw them with our eyes. We heard the twang of their bows and the clash of their armor. Hearing these cries, and the roar of the tempest, the Greeks dashed on. The Gauls are panic-striking, and rush headlong down the bill. The Greeks push on in pursuit. Rumors of fresh apparitions are spread. Three heroes, Hyperochus, Laudocus, and Pyrrhus, son of Achilles, have issued from their tombs hard by the temple, and are thrusting at the Gauls with their lances. The rout was speedy and general. The barbarians rushed to the cover of their camp, but the camp was attacked next morning by the Greeks from the town and by reinforcements from the country places. Brennus and the picked warriors about him made a gallant resistance, but defeat was a foregone conclusion. Brennus was wounded, and his comrades bore him off the field. The barbarian army passed the whole day in flight. During the ensuing night, a new excess of terror seized them. They again took flight. And four days after the passage of Thermopylae, some scattered bands, forming scarcely a third of those who had marched on Delphi, rejoined the division which had remained behind, some leagues from the town, in the plains watered by the Sophisius. Brennus summoned his comrades. "'Kill all the wounded and me,' said he. "'Burn your cars, made sister king, and away at full speed.' Then he called for wine, drank himself drunk, and stabbed himself. Sitcher did cut the throats of the wounded, and traversed 
flying and fighting, Sicily and Macedonia, and on returning whence they had set out, the Gauls dispersed, some to settle at the foot of a neighboring mountain, under the command of a chieftain named Bathanat, or Baithanat, i.e., son of the wild boar, others to march back towards their own country, the greatest part to resume the same life of incursion and adventure. But they changed the scene of operations. Greece, Macedonia, and Thrace were exhausted by pillage, and made a league to resist. About 278 B.C., the Gauls crossed the Hellespont and passed into Asia Minor. There, at one time in the pay of the kings of Bithynia, Pergamos, Cappadocia, and Syria, or of the free commercial cities which were struggling against the kings, at another carrying on wars with their own account, they wandered for more than thirty years, divided into three great hordes, which parcelled out the territories among themselves, overran and plundered them during the fine weather, entrenched themselves during winter in their camp of cars, or in some fortified place, sold their services to the highest bidder, changed masters according to interest or inclination, and by their bravery became the terror of these effeminate populations and the arbiters of these petty states. At last, both princes and people grew weary. Antiochus, king of Syria, attacked one of the three bands, that of the Tectosagians, conquered it, and cantoned it in a district of Upper Phrygia. Later still, about 241 B.C., Eumenes, sovereign of Pergamos, and Attalus, his successor, drove and shut up the other two bands, the Tolistoboians and Tremians, likewise in the same region. The victories of Tellus over the Gauls excited veritable enthusiasm. He was celebrated as a special envoy from Zeus. He took the title of king, which his predecessors had not hitherto borne. He had his battles showily painted, and that he might triumph at the same time both in Europe and Asia, he sent one of the pictures to Athens, where it was still to be seen three centuries afterwards, hanging upon the wall of the citadel. Forced to remain stationary, the Gallic hordes became a people, the Galatians, and the country they occupied was called Galatia. They lived there some fifty years, aloof from the indigenous population of Greeks and Phrygians, whom they kept in an almost servile condition, preserving their warlike and barbarous habits, resuming sometimes their mercenary service, and becoming once more the bulwark or the terror of neighboring states. But at the beginning of the second century before our era, the Romans had entered Asia in pursuit of their great enemy Hannibal. They had just beaten, near Magnesia, Antiochus, king of Syria. In his army they had encountered men of lofty stature, with hair light or dyed red, half-naked, marching to the fight with loud cries, and terrible at the first onset. They recognized the Gauls, and resolved to destroy or subdue them. The consul, Gnaeus Manlius, had the duty and the honor. Attacked in their strongholds on Mount Olympus and Mount Magaba, 
189 B.C., the three Gallic bands, after a short but stout resistance, were conquered and subjugated, and thenceforth, losing all national importance, they amalgamated little by little with the Asiatic populations around them. From time to time, they are still seen to reappear with their primitive manners and passions. Rome humored them. Mithridates had them for allies in his long struggle with the Romans. He kept them by a Galatian guard, and when he sought death, and poison failed him, it was the captain of the guard, a Gaul named Betuitus, whom he asked to run him through. That is the last historical event with which the Gallic name is found associated in Asia. Nevertheless, the amalgamation of the Gauls of Galatia with the natives always remained very imperfect, for towards the end of the fourth century of the Christian era they did not speak Greek, as the latter did, but their national tongue, that of the Kimro-Belgians, and St. Jerome testifies that it differed very little from that which was spoken in Belgica itself, in the region of Troves. End of chapter 2, part 1